You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless information. Hi, everyone. Today I have a really great story for you, and it's one of my all-time favorites. I originally wrote it for my new book, The Flip Side of History, which is still scheduled for release in mid-July. But unfortunately, my editor felt that the story was far too long and asked me to remove the last half of it. I wasn't too fond of only telling half the story, so after pondering over the problem for a bit, I made a decision to pull it from the manuscript. There is a natural break in the story about midway, and that's about the same place that the editor asked me to cut the story. So I will tell the story in two parts, and both portions involve the same man. Today you'll hear the segment about how he became the Emperor of the Sahara, and then in a couple of weeks I'll present the second half, where I discuss, of course, what happened next. And I have to tell you, that's almost as bizarre as the first half. So without further ado, here is part one of the Emperor of the Sahara. Shortly after the United States entered World War I, on July 3rd, 1917, a mysterious craft sailed into the harbor of Oyster Bay, Long Island, and cast anchor near the public dock. This 50-foot or 15-and-a-quarter-meter-long yawl was odd in the fact that it had two smaller sails, yet it lacked a main mast and a main sail. Even stranger was the fact that the boat lacked a crew. It was captained by just one man, and this stranger rowed his canoe to shore, and his peculiar actions quickly became the concern of villagers. He first walked into a tinsmith shop and requested that a hole be cut into the iron cockpit of his boat to allow in some ballast. When the tinsmith informed the man that such an action would surely cause his boat to sink, the stranger just turned around and walked out in disgust. The next day, this man with a foreign accent attempted to hire a boy to carry his suitcase around, but unfortunately none could be found. He then went to the local telegraph office to wire a request in New York City for a messenger boy to be sent, but he stormed out in a huff after not being supplied with the type of telegraph form that he desired. He was later able to hire a local boy for 15 cents, which is about $3 today. On July 9th, he lifted anchor and moved his craft to a point that was not far from President Theodore Roosevelt's Sagamore Hill estate. So the people of Oyster Bay began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. First, their country was in the midst of a world war. 
Second, a mysterious boat arrives carrying a man of foreign origin who engages in unusual activities around town. Third, he then sails close to the home of a former United States president. They knew exactly what they were dealing with, a German spy. So the local constable was summoned and he began to assemble a group of men to board the craft and arrest the stranger. But not long after they had begun their preparations, the man in question stormed into the local courtroom and he demanded the immediate arrest of a significant portion of the Oyster Bay populace. When further questioned, he narrowed his request down to several local boys, claiming that one of the young men had pointed a gun at him. It was later learned that some of the boys had thrown stones at him as he swam towards shore. When the suspect's bag was searched, authorities found that it contained $1,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $20,000 today. The bag also contained 40 keys, about a dozen oranges, and a French passport. When questioned about all that money, he reportedly stated, quote, That's nothing. I'm the richest man in America. So what do we have here? A German spy? Definitely not. A little nuts? Well, maybe. The richest man in America? Actually, quite possibly. The man in question was a guy named Jacques Lebaudy, who was indeed one of the wealthiest men in the world. And how he ended up in Long Island, New York, is among the most peculiar stories in history. Henri-Jacques Lebaudy was born in Paris on May 13, 1868, the second of four children to Ami C. and Jules Lebaudy. The family fortune was made in the refinery of sugar plus other investments that they had made. When his father Jules died on May 30, 1892, Jacques inherited as much as $20 million. That's over $560 million today. Without a doubt, Jacques Lebaudy could purchase about anything that he wished, but he couldn't purchase the one thing that he truly desired. That was power. He hated rules, taxes, mandatory military service, and most importantly, he hated the French government as a whole. You see, with power, he was certain that he could avoid all of the restrictions that France had placed upon him, and he could live a life free of governmental intrusions. What happened next is poorly documented, but it's said that he had a discussion with a man named Jimmy Langerman in 1902, and that would forever change the course of Lebaudy's life. Langerman was one of these guys that seemed to have no source of income, yet money never seemed to be in short supply. He was a bon vivant who traveled the world, and while seated at a Paris cafe, Langerman told Lebaudy of his travels through the Sahara. And while the desert may have seemed like an undeveloped, worthless pile of sand to most, Langerman explained that it was the land of promise. It was loaded with minerals and gems just waiting for someone to come and take it. As you can imagine, Jacques Labadi was hooked. He envisioned the establishment of a small Saharan country, of course installing himself as its monarch, and then reaping the fortune that its riches would offer him. Best of all, with his own country, he could do as he pleased. Lebaudy would be, once and for all, free of those oppressive French rules and regulations. Of course, the one thing missing from Lebaudy's future kingdom was, of course, the land itself. 
that he learned of a 185-mile or 300-kilometer-long strip of no-man's land on the western coast of Africa. It lied between Cape Juby and Cape Beaujador. And with no recognized power laying claim to it, Labaudi decided he would take the land for himself. Labaudi's plan was to sail his yacht, the Frasquita, from Las Palmas in the Canary Islands directly east to the location of his planned empire. He had purchased his yacht through a man named Tordo, so Labaudi asked him to recruit a team of 20 sailors for his planned voyage. One of these sailors, a man named Cambrai, later stated, quote, When we left, we were far from suspecting the true object of the voyage. M. Tordo, the agent for M. Labaudi here in Havre, informed us that he was in want of men to complete the crew of two yachts that he had bought. He offered 6 francs to 15 francs per day, according to our capacity. The offer was good, and we accepted. The sailors arrived in Las Palmas on June 1st of 1903. Labaudi ordered new uniforms for all the men, and then he put them up in a hotel as preparations for the voyage were finalized. Now, the exact date of departure is not known, but Labaudi, his assistant, and 10 of the sailors boarded the Fresquita and they set sail for the African coast. Upon their arrival, Labaudi searched for a suitable location to make landfall. He opted for a smooth, sandy beach that was flanked by undulating dunes. Upon dropping anchor, Labaudi revealed to his crew for the first time the true nature of their mission. They had come to establish the Saharan Empire, with Labaudi self-chosen to be this new nation's leader. Now, it's unknown what the crew thought of Labaudi as he read his manifesto to them, but from that moment on, he was to be referred to as Jacques I, Emperor of the Sahara. Jacques Labaudi was history. The emperor envisioned this beach and the area behind it to be the future location of his capital city and palace. He named it Troja. So a small boat was lowered from the Fresquita, and a group of men went ashore. But they quickly determined that the area lacked a source of drinking water, so the decision was made to weigh anchor and find a more suitable location for Troja. So they sailed southward until a promising bay was spotted. On June 7th, sailors were sent ashore, and upon their return they confirmed to the Labaudi that there was an abundant supply of potable water. So the emperor stepped out of his boat, walked inland a short distance, and he proceeded to plant his imperial standard right down into the sand. For now, the city of Troja would consist of just one building. That was a large circus tent that the crew had erected. But Labaudi was restless and wished to further explore his new kingdom. Sailor Cambrai stated, quote, the night of the 10th, he slept with us in the tent, and the following day he informed us he was leaving with five of our comrades to establish a post a little further on, but that he would come back the next day. He continued, He left us a small boat, two guns, two revolvers, 400 cartridges, and two days' provisions. The next day, Labadi and half his crew sailed southward before anchoring along another stretch of sandy beach. He declared this to be the location of the largest town in his empire, Polis. A few days later, Labaudi and his group headed right back to Troja. But upon arrival, they discovered that the five men who they left behind were gone. 
it was clear that the camp had been raided and that the men had been taken away. And not knowing if they were still alive or not, a search party was sent out to locate the missing sailors. It was soon learned that the men had been kidnapped on June 12th, were transported to the interior, and were being held by their captors for ransom. Then on June 20th, it was agreed that Labaudi would pay 200 francs, or about $1,000 US today, he would pay 200 francs for each of the sailors. But when the men were brought back to make the exchange on June 23rd, Labaudi and his ship were long gone. When the Frasquita arrived back in Las Palmas, Spanish authorities questioned Labaudi as to where he had sailed from. He replied, quote, From my own country, from my own country, I come from my own country. I have no information to give you. I recognize no other flag except that of my yacht. He then proceeded to point to the triangular flag that was flying from the mainmast of the Frasquita. While Labadi may not have been saying much, the remaining members of his crew were quite talkative. They told of how the five men had been kidnapped and said they no longer wished to remain a part of his bizarre plan. They demanded that Labadi pay them the wages that they were owed, plus, of course, transport back to France. But Labadi refused, so the men took their complaints to the French council. When authorities back in France learned that five of their citizens were being held captive, they immediately jumped into action. A request was sent to Moroccan authorities asking that they open a dialogue with the captors to negotiate the return of the men. A Paris newspaper sent a report in an attempt to purchase their freedom. And lastly, the French cruiser Galilee was dispatched to Cape Juby. The ship dropped anchor on August 24th, not far from where the sailors had last been seen. An interpreter from the Galilee was sent ashore to negotiate with the captors, but the discussions went nowhere. The ship's captain was able to get three letters to the prisoners, the last of which was sent with a change of clothing. Now that final note instructed the men to put on the clothing as soon as possible, and this was so they could stand out easily from the others at a distance, and then they should do their best to separate themselves from their captors. At 1.30pm on August 31st in 1903, the five men pretended to take a nonchalant stroll along the beach. Once they were a good distance away, the Galilee just simply opened fire into the gap between the prisoners and their captors. The sailors made a mad dash into the water and they swam toward a small boat that had been lowered down from the ship. The shots continued until the sailors were safe aboard the Galilee. As you can imagine, the rescue did not go over well with the French government or its citizens. An article that appears in the September 6, 1903 issue of the Boston Globe begins, quote, The French press continues to ask if it shall be minute ou camisole, that's handcuffs or straitjacket, for Jacques Labaudi. The same story told of an interview that Labaudi did with Le Journal in Las Palmas, where he stated, quote, in the first place, my men would have not been captured if they had not been cowards. I explained to them that they were engaged for warfare. When menaced, they surrendered, where I, their emperor, would have died fighting. He continued, Employment has its risks. In my mines and in my sugar factories, men are injured daily, but I pay no damages. 
While Labadi's Saharan Empire ceased to exist not long after it began, he refused to give up on his dream. In his mind, the only mistake that he made was not having enough armed men to protect his new nation from marauders. He was determined to go back to Africa with a complete army and claim what he felt was rightfully his. Facing public anger, lawsuits, and potential criminal charges, Labadi was wise enough not to return to France immediately. Instead, he took a steamer to Hamburg, Germany, and he announced a few days later that he was calling together 11 of his so-called ministers of state in Montreux, Switzerland. Labadi also indicated he'd appoint a lieutenant general to command over a 100-man army that he was forming. So on September 21st, he appointed a duelist, a guy named Lumberdescu, to be his so-called, and you're going to love this, commander-in-chief of the armies of His Majesty Jacques I, Emperor of Sahara. By early October, Labadi had moved his nation's operations to a large suite of rooms at the Hotel Savoy in London. And while his country only existed on paper, he proceeded to have all the accoutrements befitting an emperor made. That included a dazzling crown, a throne, imperial flags, banknotes, and even postage stamps. Men were appointed as secretaries and ministers of state, while Labadi personally chose the beautiful women for his royal court. One woman in particular, Marguerite Augustine Daloc-Derrier, was chosen to be his wife. And as you'll soon learn in the second part of this story, his chosen empress will play a significant part in bringing Labaudi's story to a close. Meanwhile, back home in France, matters were worsening for Labaudi. He was threatened with expulsion from the country, and he was being asked to reimburse the French government for costs incurred while rescuing his five sailors. All of these five men filed suit against Labaudi, but sadly one of them died shortly after his return to France from injuries he sustained during the abduction. Labaudi was also informed that he owed France 13 days of compulsory military service, to which he responded, I am now a Saharan. You might as well expect the German emperor to come and serve as a French soldier. The New York Times reported on January 19th of 1904 that Labaudi planned to ask President Theodore Roosevelt to nominate former members of his Rough Riders for positions in the Saharan military. Colonel George Gerard, Governor General of Sahara, told the Times, quote, The invitation to recommend officers will be submitted to President Roosevelt in a few days. Whether the President will consider it proper to accept the invitation or not, the Emperor wishes to pay him this compliment. As you can probably guess, Roosevelt never responded. Next, quote, His Majesty Jacques I domiciled in Troja in the Empire of Sahara, filed suit against brokers that owed him money. On April 9th, the French court concluded that Labaudi's empire only existed in his mind, and therefore he had no basis for the lawsuit. This loss in court would be followed by another 10 days later. This time he settled out of court with the five kidnapped sailors for 50,000 francs, about a quarter of a million dollars today. Now, despite these financial setbacks, Labaudi would continue on his quest for legitimate recognition of his Saharan empire. And that's probably a good place to conclude part one of this story. In the second half, which I hope to have post in the next couple of weeks, 
You'll learn of Labadi's attempt to establish himself as an emperor in Montenegro, his run-ins with the law, how he ended up in Long Island being mistaken for a German spy, and how his quest for an empire of his own came to a sudden, shocking end. If you're keeping a sharp eye on your food budget these days, here's an economical way to make leftovers taste extra good. Pour a rich golden Pabstet cheese sauce over leftovers of meat, chicken, vegetables, or fish. Presto, leftovers taste better than ever. Pabstet cheese food is a grand treat in snacks and sandwiches, too. And it's doubly delicious served with fruit or pie for dessert. Get Pabstet tomorrow in golden cheddar or pimento varieties. Ask for P-A-B-S-T hyphen E-T-T. Pabstet cheese food. That commercial for Pabstet cheese food is from the October 1st, 1947 broadcast of the classic radio show The Great Gildersleeve. This particular episode was titled Teaching Leroy Borrowing and Finance. The character of Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve was first introduced on the radio situation comedy Fibber McGee and Molly on October 3rd of 1939. That character was then spun off into its own show beginning on August 31st of 1941. Titled, as I've already mentioned, The Great Gildersleeve, it completed its run on radio in 1958. Now, there was an attempt to move the show to television in 1955, but the series was canceled after 39 episodes. As for Pabst at Cheese Food, that has a bit of an interesting history. The Pabst Brewing Company began in 1844, and by the turn of the 20th century, it had grown into the second largest brewer in the United States. But as you probably already know, there was trouble brewing on the horizon. That's because the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution banned the production and sale of alcoholic beverages beginning in 1920. As a result, Paps either needed to find a new product line or, you know, face going out of business. I wonder which one they chose. Well, they found their answer in cheese. In January 1926, they began aggressively marketing a processed whey cheese that was similar to Velveeta, but supposedly more spreadable. They initially called it Paps Cheesette, but it was soon shortened to Pabsette. They produced the cheese in a dairy that was located west of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they stored it in the brewery's unused ice cellars while it aged. By 1930, Paps had sold more than 8 million pounds of Pabsette. That's over 3.6 million kilograms. Now, I don't care which system of measurement you use, but either way, that's a lot of processed cheese. As Prohibition drew to a close, Paps decided to return to the brewing business and they sold Pabset off to Kraft, you know, the makers of Velveeta. They sold it on October 21st of 1933, just as Prohibition was ending. Now, the last advertisement for Pabset that I could locate was in the May 27th, 1965 issue of the Tennessean. Back then, a 2-pound or 0.91-kilogram package sold for 69 cents. Adjusted for inflation, that'd be about $5.70 today. So I've got a question for you. As you probably already know, Meals on Wheels is a program that delivers meals to the homes of those who are unable to purchase and or prepare meals on their own. And my question for you is really in two parts. First, in what year was Meals on Wheels started? And you don't have to have the exact date, but see if you can get close. And second, why was it given the nickname of Meals on Wheels? 
And I'll give you a hint. The women who were making the deliveries did not use a motorized vehicle of any kind. And if you're thinking horse, that's not correct either. It wasn't motorized and it wasn't pulled by a horse or a donkey or anything like that. Why was it called Meals on Wheels? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Since we're currently in the midst of a global pandemic, I thought it'd be interesting to look back at the influenza pandemic that spread throughout the world between 1918 and 1919. It was an H1N1 virus and it's thought to have been avian in origin, and it's estimated that the virus infected 500 million people, which is about a third of the world's population at the time. Wow. An estimated 50 million people died with 675,000 of those deaths having been right here in the United States. And although there's no known cure even to this day, that didn't stop people from claiming they had discovered the perfect elixir. What I found interesting was that many of the supposed cures involved onions in one way or another. But I thought I'd tell you about three of the more unusual concoctions, none of which include onions, and clearly none of which did anything to help the patient. On October 11, 1918, 
It was reported that Dr. George F. Baer of the Homeopathic Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had discovered the perfect influenza cure. Dr. Baer claimed he had successfully administered his concoction on patients who were suffering from the disease and had a fever of 103 degrees Fahrenheit or 39.4 degrees Celsius. He claimed they had all recovered. Now, I should point out that the number of patients that underwent this treatment was not detailed. Dr. Baer did insist that the exact formulation of his cure was to remain a scientific secret, but he was willing to reveal that it was a combination of iodine and creosote. Now, if you're not familiar with creosote, it's essentially the tar that's given off during the process of burning wood. In our next story of Miracle Cures, it was reported on October 29th of that same year that employees of the Curtis Corporation, a tuna cannery in Long Beach, California, had been rendered immune to the influenza. Why, you may ask? Well, it's simply because they've been exposed to the odor of pimentos, you know, a sweet-flavored pepper with very mild heat. It was said that scientists had begun experiments to produce an effective antitoxin from the pimentos. The article indicated that studies were underway to determine whether eating the pimento peppers could in fact prevent the influenza. And in our last tidbit for today, which is dated November 29, 1918, it was reported from The Hague in the Netherlands that an unnamed Austrian doctor had discovered that beets, you know, the root vegetable, was both an effective preventative and treatment for influenza. Supposedly, he had given his patients a plateful of beet salad just as the fever began to set in, and very quickly the fever was reduced. So as word of this simple elixir began to spread, the demand for beets in Holland just skyrocketed. That caused the price per beet to increase tenfold. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you about Meals on Wheels. The first part of the question was in what year was it started? I have to be honest, the exact date that the program started was never actually recorded, but it is known that it began during Germany's blitz bombing of Great Britain between 1941 and 1942. So if you got 1941-42, somewhere in that range, I'll give you credit. You see, so many British homes are destroyed that people are unable to cook their own meals. As a result, the Women's Volunteer Service for Civil Defense put into motion a plan to both cook and deliver meals to those in need. Yet they never referred to it as Meals on Wheels. That was a nickname that servicemen gave to the program after observing that many of the women were delivering the food in, did you get it, baby carriages. After the war ended, the concept of feeding those in need spread to other countries. It was in January of 1954 that the first home-delivered meal program began right here in the United States. That occurred in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And it was shortly after that, on August 9, 1954, that the first Meals on Wheels meals were delivered in Australia. They went to eight elderly Port Adelaide residents. Today, the Meals on Wheels program has spread worldwide. But a large number of the programs that people refer to as Meals on Wheels are not really part of that organization. Many of the meal programs are sponsored locally, you know, by local and state governments and religious organizations. I personally know several elderly people who are dependent on this type of service, 
and it's allowed them to stay in their homes and to continue to live independently. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'll try to get the second half of The Emperor of the Sahara posted in the next couple of weeks, but honestly, it's easier said than done. I'm finding teaching during the pandemic lockdown here in New York State to be incredibly time-consuming and difficult, and this sudden shift to teaching remotely is kind of like, I don't know, trying to repair an airplane while it's in flight. But it's getting a bit easier each day, especially since my students are finally getting used to the new routine. As I mentioned, my new book, The Flipside History, will be released in mid-July, and I'm supposed to get my first look at the completed book sometime next week. They said right after May 1st. If you'd be interested in purchasing a copy, it's available for pre-order on both Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Just a general reminder to be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and that will enable you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle's at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there, and it should pop up. My website, which has images to accompany transcripts of the podcast, is located at uselessinformation.org. If for any reason you'd like to contact me, you can do so at steve at uselessinformation.org. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyway, I hope that everyone stays healthy and safe. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.